What is professionalism? What is the best way a medical student learns? What is the Office of Professionalism, Evaluation, and Learning? Today, on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Dr. Barbara Cahill, who is the Dean of OPAL. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. So welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. I've got a great guest today, Dr. Cahill, who is our Dean of Professionalism, Evaluation, and Learning. Am I saying that right? You're saying it right. Hi, Ben. How are you? Doing well. So... Do you, and it goes by Pell. Opal. Opal. Yeah. Office of Professionalism, Evaluation, Learning. That's right. us. And it's very unique. You know, I've been to many other medical schools during tours and things like that. I've never encountered an office quite like this. So tell me how this office get created and what's the purpose of this office? Well, the office is really a spinoff of the Student Affairs Office. Um, our job was to take some of the very student-centric academic um, aspects of medical school and concentrate them so that we could better address um, student needs and uh, deal with them in a real-time manner now that our curriculum has changed to be more integrative. So when students need academic assistance, mm-hmm. they need it in real time. It's yeah. not something that we can re- reach out and deal we, – we can't reach out to them at the end of a clerkship, at the end of a course, because these courses all require that you be at a level of competence at the end of them in order to progress on in the curriculum. So we tend to keep very active um, – uh, we, we pay very active attention to where students are at on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis in the curriculum. We tend to intervene pretty early as they um, as they prove to be either doing very well or doing you know or or be at risk or demonstrate that they're at risk, and we try and provide them academic um, resources mm-hmm. to ensure their success so that we're not remediating. Mm-hmm. We're trying to stay ahead of the game. Awesome. So when I talk about Opal, you know, during interview day during the orientation. I talk about, like, you know, going back to resources that you can meet with the medical students. You can review learning styles. Um, there's actually opportunities to have tutors more involved. Um, what other types of, uh, you know, academic instruction does your office offer? So this year we floated a couple new ideas that seem to be work- working very successfully, especially in, in phase one. We used uh, supplemental instructors. Mm-hmm. So these were fourth-year students or second-year students, for the most part, who did well in phase one and could go over the week's um, learning objectives uh, in some details over pizza on a Friday generally in a relaxed atmosphere where it was Mm -hmm. peer-driven and um, students could actually either review or cement uh, key concepts that they they were exposed to during the week. So that was one thing we tried this year that worked very well. We worked with um, um, Dave Morton in anatomy, and Dave hired two um, graduate students to be um, TAs in the anatomy lab so that they were available um, sort of on a more uh, infre- uh, sort of on a more casual basis. You didn't need to sort of you didn't need to make an appointment to see them, but they were there to, to, to provide you help outside of lab hours uh, mm-hmm. for, for phase one related issues. And then we've been really um, toying with um, and working with group tutoring and then individual tutoring, um, trying to match people in a little better manner. So a lot of people think that tutors are reserved for people that are struggling academically. The focus of our office has really uh, shifted a little bit this year. We're looking at people that are doing well, 
and try and figure out how to make them do better, mm. um, how to really build on the strengths that they are bringing to the game, mm-hmm. so that they can so that they can bring a better skill set to the third year. I mean, that leads to a natural question, Doctor Cahill. How does a medical student do well in medical school? Because I get this question a lot. I go out there, do a lot of presentations, and there's a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of angst, like you know, going to medical school. It's like this big mythical place, and people are so worried about doing well. In your experience in this office, how, what are effective studying methods? What actually helps? I think that uh, being there and being fully participatory is absolutely key to being a successful physician. Okay, so there's getting into medical school and there's being a physician. Mm -hmm. And getting into medical school is a step. Getting through medical school is another step. Performing well and being ready to take on internship is what my goal is when I see people in orientation on day one. So what, what people need to get into medical school is in your bailiwick. Mm -hmm. What they need to be successful in medical school falls under the umbrella of medical education, and we support the efforts of medical education to try and make our students the best residency applicant product out there. We want we want residency program directors saying, Utah kid, we want them. Mm-hmm. Okay? And, and, the and our high match that, rate is evidence of that. Our, well, our, I think yeah, so. And people, yeah. you know, this year in particular, people did very well and got into where programs they really wanted to get into. Not only fields they wanted to get into, but programs they wanted to get into. And I'm, that, that makes me very happy. The path to that success really depends on your performance and the attitude that you bring to medical school. So you'll see a lot of people that just say, you know what, I don't learn that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have to steal one of Dr. Samuelson's lines. You learn the way patients teach you. Okay. Okay. So you really have to, you have to be able to learn in a lot of different situations. You'll find that in medical school, you're being assessed over a number of different, um, what's the word? Um, Settings. No, it's, um, Learning, learning styles, okay. okay? So you have to, there are, there are assessments that require you to, to perform verbally. There are assessments that require you to uh, write text and explain yourself in prose. There are assessments that are multiple choice. There are assessments that um, um, watch you communicate. Um, there are assessments that look at how you can integrate pieces of information you're given. You, you might be a really great test taker, mm-hmm. but you might struggle integrating, you know, a blood gas, a chest x-ray, and a physical exam finding. And medical students have areas where they excel because they bring different different skill sets to, to the game. But at, at the end of four years, you have to be proficient in all aspects of acquiring, um, integrating, and then communicating information. And mm-hmm. that's what medical school is about. So when I say show up, you show up for the things that you're good at. You show up for the things you might not be good at. If you're good at something, you're going to be able to teach your peers. Mm-hmm. So one of the other jobs about medical school is that I consider it the medical student's job to ensure that the entire class walks across the stage, stage of together. graduation yeah. in four years. I think that this is um, very much a, uh, a community of learners. Mm-hmm. This is a career of public service. This is a very public um, career overall, and, and we're held to very high standards of behavior and communication. And I think that that is a, an aspect of the education that's really not emphasized enough. Okay. Well, you know, we've talked about learning. Let's talk about other parts of OPAL. Evaluations. 
you kind of made allusion to it. But I do know your office is in charge of not only evaluating the students, but also the courses they go through as well. I, I get the sense it's a two-way street. Can you talk some more about that? Because I know I hear these w- words a lot, like on-the-fly evaluations. I, so, I hear those in right. meetings fair amount. So, so students are absolutely essential to the evaluation process. Mm-hmm. The other the, One of the other jobs our office performs is to evaluate aspects of the curriculum, sort of take the mile-high view Evaluate how the curriculum met its uh, met its goals for a certain course, a certain clerkship, a certain learning experience, and then report back to the curriculum committee. Um, we bring people from across the um, educational spectrum to to chair to to sit on those committees, and students prove to be absolutely integral mm-hmm. uh, members of those committees. That's the evaluation of the curriculum. So students not only experience, but also have to critique the curriculum. And we utilize information from students during their uh, learning experiences. So um, at the end of every clerkship and at the end of every course, students fill out an evaluation on all of the teaching faculty. Mm. And they also evaluate the the certain aspects of the course that we think are very important that, that students master. Secondly, um, we provide uh, or we ask uh, certain ask certain numbers of students to sit down, a random numbers of students to sit down at a couple points during each course, and talk with a confidential um, uh, interviewer to talk about what's working well in courses, what's working, what's not working well, where can we where can we improve. Thirdly, we give students the option to report strengths and weaknesses or things that they don't think they can put down in writing or they don't feel trustful enough to say in a group setting. We give them um, a... Um, Is that the on-the-fly? That's the... Uh, we give on, them the opportunity to... to, to strictly uh, anonymous. Use, it's an yeah. encrypted website okay. that only one person has access to. It's a very trusted source in the, in the, um, in the dean's office who... Um, takes these comments from students and directs them to the appropriate venue. We protect students. We, we like students to come be able to feel safe enough to put their name on something. Um, but in the event that they feel that they can't or they don't or they want to report things in, um, anonymously, the on-the-fly gives them the opportunity mm-hmm. or a venue to sort of say, you know, I really think such and such and might you do something about it or I want to praise so and so because they you know they they took a very difficult situation and they and they and they made something good of it some you know some we've seen a spectrum of things come through the on the fly mm-hmm. um, and it's proved very um, a very beneficial way for students to to share their concerns about the curriculum so student um, participation in the curriculum um, and in the evaluation process and in making the learning program um, better is absolutely key mm-hmm and lastly, the first letter of Opal of an office is professionalism. And to me, like that's probably the most important one in many respects because you made allusions to it. Like we are training uh, the next generation of physicians and service-bound, high degree of competence, high degree of responsibility. So what is your definition of professionalism and how does your office help address that? So my definition of professionalism is, is what you profess. Mm-hmm. What do you profess as a psychiatrist? As a psychiatrist, uh, to always put the patients first, to care for them, right. um, to always remember that you have a sacred duty to listen and to help. Uh, patients come to psychiatrists usually in crisis or in pain. Um, not just psychiatrists, but I think a lot of physicians. Right. You could we, change that to any yeah, physician. We, we, we hear the saddest stories, and people trust us, share with us uh, their innermost you know, fears, uh, their their hopes, their dreams, and that's very private. That's very beautiful to have that trust in someone. So that, that's what professionalism is, that, that trust. And right. everything kind of cascades from that. And, if, yeah. and if, if you don't honor 
the sacred what is what I consider a sacred contract or a mm. uh, an immensely important contract with a patient, you destroy the profession. Okay. And prof- our our role as a, the professionalism in Opal really stands for our um, our ability to promote professional ideas through the curriculum. Much of what students learn about professionalism comes through the curriculum and the curriculum committee and the way classes are taught. When people have lapses in professionalism, we talk with them about that. We address those. We give people the opportunity Mm -hmm. to learn from their mistakes and to really be sensitive to the level of behavior and the level of performance to which they are being held as physicians. That is something that's not necessarily intuitive to people when they're coming into medical school because when they come into medical school, I think a lot of people are focused on, I need grades, I need a knowledge base, I need, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I need to have the following areas of expertise and medical school is so much more about developing um, a professional demeanor and a professional psyche, mm-hmm. um, not just mastering the ac- you know, the academic um, standards mm-hmm. that we, we give them. And I think it's hard because I think as a student progresses in their education, there are different requirements and different expectations placed upon them. For example, you know, during third year, when our medical students are out on the wards and interacting with patients on a much more frequent basis. You know, there is an expectation of being on time, dressing professionally, speaking professionally, um, addressing other members of the treatment team, no matter who they are, in a professional, mature way. And I think that's hard for some of our students because, you know, the first two years are more classroom-based. There are some examples of them going out in the community. But during third year, you really are more under a microscope. People are kind of see you and interact with you on a much more basis. And I'm talking – Yeah, you're being evaluated at all times. You think Mm -hmm. you're only being evaluated – when you're rounding and you're presenting mm-hmm. or when you're evaluating a patient. But you're being evaluated when there's conversation over coffee mm-hmm. between rounds. It's the in-between parts of the world when you're third year where your professionalism really is tested. And people mm-hmm. people need to know that, and it doesn't happen overnight. So you really need to learn that skill set in the first couple of years. And um, we don't instill that. That mm-hmm. is really part of the curriculum and part of the modeling that students need to see. We try to talk with students when there are areas where they can improve and they need to be th- things they need to be aware of, things they can work on. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Dr. Cahill, we have a couple more minutes before we have to, uh, you know, have to sit uh, close this podcast. But I was going to ask you kind of like, you know, I've been asking all the physicians your journey to get to this point. So first of all, what kind of physician are you when you're not the Opal D? I am a pulmonary critical care physician. My main clinical focus is in um, the area of lung transplantation. So I work with adult lung transplant mm-hmm. candidates and recipients for the most part. How did you get interested in that field? What drew you to it? Oh, I fell into the field. Uh, literally. Literally fell into the field. When I was doing my pulmonary critical care training, lung transplant was a new field. Um, and uh, one of the jobs I had was that I had to um, perform in a longitudinal clinical experience in my fellowship, and they needed bodies and transplants. So we were all shifted to the transplant clinic, and that was a really exciting time because... I'm an I, I'm an old enough fart that that was that was new and, and and nobody knew what they were doing back then. So it was a great it was a great opportunity okay. to learn and put your mm-hmm. put your um, your wits into the game. Mm-hmm. So um, 
it stuck. Mm-hmm. Most most of the most of the trainees that I I was I was working with at that time also stayed in the field of lung mm-hmm. transplantation. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so uh, you know I have no idea what the numbers are, but so for right now, um, you know you see a lot of patients in clinic who have had a lung transplant. Correct. Mm-hmm. How many lung transplants are there in our hospital or in the state of Utah? I mean, well, so on average is this, is this, between is ten more? and twenty a year. There's probably um, several hundred in the state. Several. Okay. Our goal is to if they're um, if they're sick and they need a transplant, we'd like them to come to our program. Mm-hmm. But right now they go to programs all over the place and mm-hmm. we acquire them pre, post, and during. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a small population. It's a highly specialized area mm-hmm. of, of pulmonary medicine. With advancement in the field, are these is this patient population living longer and longer? I'd like to say that's the case. Um, on average, the numbers are, are incrementally okay. improved, but not... Um, revolutionarily improved okay. yet, but we're going to get there. Okay. Well, this is, again, I, I'm kind of springing this on you, but that, that's why I love doing the podcast. This is my podcast. I can do what I want. Um, you know, one of the things I've been talking about with physicians, and again, it's kind of a question I'm getting with our incoming students, is how do you handle death and dying? And it sounds like with this unique patient population, you've probably gotten attached to a fair amount of patients over the years, and some of them, unfortunately, pass away. Um, how do you handle that? What kind of, what kind of, you know how how do you as a physician uh, inter- help that interpret that? How do you make sense of that? Well, I think a lot of that depends upon where the patient is at and the and what I call the tool set that the patient's using. Okay. So I think um, it's important for me as a as a provider to sort of utilize the tools and um, and work with patients in the context of the tools that they use to get through their life. Mm. And that's how we approach death and dying. Um, you're right. I think that, you know, when transplant patients die, it's kind of an exhausting and, and emotionally draining mm-hmm. um, experience because we've known them from the time they were suffering from end-stage lung disease through their transplant. Mm-hmm. And there's like a burst of happiness and joy. Yeah, for, whatever, got, for yeah. however long that lasts. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sometimes people die of of things that we all die of. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they die of transplant-related things. Um, these are people who appreciate on a level that you and I probably don't appreciate. It's like, what, it's like more time they got. They got a gift. Yeah. They got wow. a gift and they can breathe mm-hmm. and they can talk in complete sentences and they can pick up their grandkids and they can mm. they can do things. So their their perspective on life is, is they look through this lens of gratitude. Mm-hmm. And they're an immensely um, delightful population to deal with because... It's just fun to work with people like that mm-hmm. to be in that in that in that mindset. Mm. So when you lose them, it hurts. Yeah, it hurts. And I think that's the humanity of what we do. And you know, sometimes I get asked, like, you know, does it ever get do you get dull? Does it get numb? Does it ever get hard? And it, it does. It does. And I think doctors sometimes, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, so I say this word. We build up defense mechanisms, and because we can't become so emotionally engaged. That you know we're a blubbering mess at any time a patient has a bad outcome. Yeah, that you have to be able to do your but job. I, I think agree. you have to strike a balance. There's moderation in all things in life, and that you can't become totally, totally aloof or or disengaged. That you can't be an effective physician, and you just don't care at that point. And I've also met physicians kind of along that spectrum that get have gotten so burned out emotionally that they're just you know they're just getting a paycheck. They're not really caring anymore. And that's to me that's the art and science of medicine, and that's why I love our curriculum so much because there's such a emphasis on both sides. So yeah, I think that um, these are really good questions that students need to think about mm-hmm. all the time. Um, and I think if you reach a point where where you have to have um, a wall up to some degree because the emotional burden of, of death mm-hmm. and dying is, is great, but if your wall isn't porous, 
and 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 you cannot and you can't feel some of the pain that your patients and their families are feeling then mm-hmm. then uh, then it's time to to think about why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Are there are there still death and dying lectures within the curriculum? There are. And actually okay. I, surprisingly I just gave um a talk to the fourth year students on it started out on uh, on declaration of death in the hospital and it quickly mm-hmm. expanded to how do you tell family members in that situation what how do you address you know, attending physicians, what about organ donation? And, and it, it, it just really blossomed into a very, what I thought was a very rich conversation mm-hmm. about the nuances of, you know, there's, there's death and then there's the pain of death and the pain of loss. Mm-hmm. And um, our students were really, really um, attentive and participatory in that conversation. So I was very pleased. Yeah. I think, I think there, I mean, I think this curriculum has come a long way. I think, I think 20, 30, 40 years ago, not just our medical school, but all medical schools, they didn't really talk about death and dying. There wasn't that really instruction that led up to it. And now they kind of rec- – I mean, I think physicians are always guilty to a certain extent that treat death as a disease. And, you know, we can't save all our patients. And so I think it's necessary to have that to kind of start thinking about it. I think that's kind of part of the curriculum. So, yeah. Right. I think much of, much of what you do when you're not in the in, – there are sort of surgical mindsets and more medical mindsets in the – um, medical mindsets have to be willing to say, "I can't make this, but be- I can't cure this." But let's see if we can make it better for as long as possible as you journey along in your life. Mm-hmm. And I think that that expectation that you can't fix it, but maybe you can make it better, mm-hmm. um, is what drives. What, a lot what, of what does do. surgical mindset say? Uh, I have to cut it to cure it, <laughs> <laughs> sure. or I have to cut it to try and fix it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Dr. Cahill, I appreciate your time. Thanks for the discussion. And I look forward to having you back on this podcast in not too long. All right? Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.